everyone. I am Laura Swisher. I'm the senior producer at Max Fun, and I am also your moderator today for today's Max Fun Headquarters Access Behind the Mic event, and we're going to be talking about activism. As a way to say thanks to you folks who are at the highest tiers of Max Fun membership, we're running these special Zoom calls every month. In each Behind the Mic event, you'll hear from a host or two about their show and sometimes a special topic. Other times, it's an opportunity to ask questions and say hello. Today, we'll begin with a little discussion about our host shows and then get into our topic. I've prepared some questions to get the discussion started, and then we'll have time to take some questions from you. All right. So our topic today is activism. Where do we go from here? Allow me to introduce our guests for this chat, Fanti host Travel Anderson and Jarrett Hill. Now, Travel is the editor for Toronto's Extra. Their career in journalism includes time as director of entertainment and culture at Out Magazine and bringing a focus on black and queer film to the LA Times. They've dedicated their career to centering marginalized groups through a pop culture lens and currently serve as president of the National Association of Black Journalists Los Angeles Chapter, or NABJLA. Travel was named to the Roots 2020 list of the 100 most influential African Americans. Jarrett Hill, that's my dog. Jarrett Hill also co-hosts Fanti and is an award-winning journalist and in-demand host, moderator, and interviewer focusing on elevated, underrepresented voices from filmmakers to tastemakers. His work includes covering the 2020 presidential election for Channel Q and co-hosting a daily show called Drop the Subject. He serves as the vice president of NABJLA and was named to the Ebony Power 100 in 2016. Welcome, you two. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. It was all me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right, you guys, before I get to the gotcha questions, I thought we could oh. start off with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's all. Okay. Oh, were these supposed to be? Okay. No, I, no, no. Yeah, okay. You yeah. want to hold? You know, however Anyways, it goes. Just be on your test. We'll follow um, your lead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, before before we dive into that, I thought we could start off with the Fanti origin story. And Travel, do you want to just kind of give us a quick description of Fanti and how it found a home on the network? That is Let's see what your question. version of this story is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. That is a great story. Um, so... I had been at the LA Times, as you mentioned, I believe, and I was a guest on a number of other shows, Who Shot Ya, Pop Rocket, Rest in Peace, and probably somebody else too. Heat Rocks. And uh, Heat Rocks, I think mm, think Heat Rocks is after we joined the network. But anyway, I was so great and so amazing that Laura Swisher was like, oh my God, we've got to get them involved in Max Fun in some way, shape or form. (laughs) At the same time, Jared and I were president and vice president of NABJLA. And we have this really interesting rapport. And so like a lot of our members and when we would host panels and stuff, they'd be like, oh my God, y'all need a show. Like I would watch it. I would listen to you. And so both of those things happened at the same time. And am I, I feel like I'm missing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Am I? No, carry on. Let's see how this goes. (laughs) 
But then, and then long story short, we came up with the idea for a show, formally pitched it to Jesse and Bikram and Laura, and they were like, And so we went back to the drawing board and Jared and I spent like 12 hours in like a marathon phone call. Now I'm embellishing the story. I was going to say, because I don't remember this call, but okay. (laughs) To come up with a new idea because we had like 48 hours to get them back with something or they were going to, you know, drop us or whatever. And then we we were on the phone and we came up with this idea of fanti, this word fanti. Jared is the one who actually came up with the word, which is like a portmanteau, a fan, and anti. And we wanted to start having conversations about people and things that like we're fans of, but like have some anti feelings toward. And so we put something together. I think Jared redesigned a deck for it or something like that. And we repitched it and they were like, oh my God, y'all are amazing. Like we thought, let's (laughs) do it. And then it was like six months of us like prepping it or something like that. Maybe like just two months, I don't know. And then we did some sample episodes and some of the the people who are on the little committee or whatever, I think (laughs) listened to it and they were like, yes, stamp of approval. And then we launched around this time last year before- Daniel is in the chat and just said, inspired by a true story. (laughs) Inspired by actual events. (laughs) Inspired by actual events is not the same thing as based on a That's true story. That's basically what happened, okay? It's close enough. Do you, do you have any do you have any corrections, Jared, or additions to the story? Uh, sure. Um you mean facts. <laughs> I would say that the show that we initially pitched was called I Don't Disagree because Travel and I as president and vice president respectively, we would always one of us would always be the one that was like at the cliff's edge with an issue with our organization and the other would always like use that phrase to the other. Um, like, okay, okay, I don't disagree. However, comma, and like that would, we've probably said that on the phone to each other a hundred times. So we pitched this idea of a show called I Don't Disagree. And that was the show that you all were like, I mean, this is cute, but there's still <laughs> something missing here. And I think Jesse was the one that was like, there's still something that's not quite there. So I called Travel and I was like, I have this idea for a segment that we could add to I Don't Disagree and we could call it Fanti and like talk about something that we like, but have issues with, but you know, kind of go back and forth. And then the segment became the show. I was like, I think this is actually the show itself. And that was, you know, kind of the beginning. And we came back and pitched it to you all. You said, oh my God, this is amazing. Like Travel didn't say. And it took a couple of months. We, I think we did three pilot episodes. Yeah. And I want to say two of them we've actually aired. It was the gospel episode. Do, do you remember what the other one was? We aired the gospel episode. I think we we also had done, uh, I think, the 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 Black, the British are coming Black British app, yeah. I don't know that we aired that one. We did. We we did the topic, but we didn't use. I don't think we aired the pilot version. We just liked the topic and and found a occasion to use it. Yeah. So that was kind of how it got started. Um, And I was leaving my daily radio show that you mentioned. Dropped the subject. I didn't like renew my contract there, and so I was off the air on that show on Friday and then onto the show on Tuesday. Uh, And then we were out for that first Thursday and it's kind of been off to the races from there. I think our first taping was the day of Super Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for the the Democratic primaries or the 
the national primaries. So it was a it was a long day, but like that first show came out, and I remember the big thing that happened after that first episode was we got the shout out from Pop Culture Happy Hour from uh, Linda, Holmes. Linda Linda Holmes, and then that next week we saw like a big boost um, after that, and it's been kind of off to the races. Yeah, I know that one of the pilot episodes that did air was the uh, the gospel show, and that's for me. I was like, oh, this is this is fantastic. I, maybe it's just that I like to see Jared cry. I don't know. I was, I I was about know. to say it's because I cried. I'm <laughs> sure it's because I cried. But it was like it was actually poignant, and I and, and it just it felt like very honest and real and raw and vulnerable. And you know, for a moment, it I didn't want to like tease you, and so I was like, oh, I guess this is like for pretty good. Yeah, because it took away my like sarcasm or snarkiness. And I was I was just like engrossed. So. You know, you guys have the ability to do that. I fight it. I fight it because, you know, I'd, I'd much said, You don't do it guys. often, but you have the ability. That's exactly. Important. Okay, so let's dive into our, our topic. We've just witnessed the inauguration of President Joe Biden, Madam Vice President Kamala Harris. We've watched a 22-year-old black woman, Amanda Gorman, deliver the inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb, and Saturday Night Live has multiple black cast members and future players one of whom is a lesbian to boot so today's topic is where does activism go from here so i want to start this off by asking you both to give us some context on how each of you would characterize here and follow that with your thoughts on how we got here and what individuals or organizations deserve some credit for this. And Jarrett, since we just had an historic election, why don't you go first and answer how we got here politically? You know, just as an example, in 2014, Cori Bush was a registered nurse who marched in Ferguson. And a little over a week ago, stood on stood on the House floor asking for the impeachment of a white supremacist. So... Yeah, if you want to weigh in, what is here to you and how do we get here? I I mean, here is such a, a big thing. I would say that how did we get here? I think we've been on our way here since our creation, to be quite honest. I think we've been running in this direction. Uh, and when I say this direction, I mean, you know, capital insurrection. I mean, black and brown folks, you know, have been saying for a long time, like, this is an issue. LGBTQ folks as well. I would say that here is, you know, exciting and scary and, you know, uh, encouraging and horrifying and all of the things at the same time. I would say here is a place that we can be optimistic and hopeful, but also have to be practical and realistic. And so as I see Kamala Harris as our new vice president and Joe Biden taking office, yesterday I watched Joe Biden's COVID press conference. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I already feel more optimistic after listening to the plan and seeing that a plan exists and is published and available for everyone to look at. And when I think about here, I, I was speaking about this earlier, I'm really grateful, asterisk, that COVID happened in Donald Trump's last year in office as opposed to his first. I think it would just be a very different thing uh, if this you know, happened in 2017 and listen, you know what I mean? But I also, we can't, I know a lot of people want to, you know, like erase Donald Trump and act like it never happened. But I think that that would do us all a great disservice to pretend like 
the last four years did not happen because it's so important for us to remember that they did and how we got here. I think that without Barack Obama having been president in you know 2009 to 2016, I don't think that we would have had Donald Trump, to be quite honest. I think that, that Barack Obama really jarred a lot of white people in this country. And I was thinking about this in the shower. You know, we can see anecdotally and we can see from data and statistics that it is a new day in America, right? Like America is changing. And there are plenty of people who are resistant to that, largely white folks, right? That are are concerned about what that means for the future of this country. And, you know, that is kind of how I think that we got here, per se. I'll follow up with you in a little bit about specifically talking about activism, but Travel. When you're, if we're talking about here and you're looking at the cultural, pop cultural landscape and, you know, we're seeing, you know, Wakanda forever and there's been a lot of change that's happened and also not enough change that's happened. How would you, yeah, how would you characterize what here is and, and are, what are you seeing as positive and what are you seeing as as things that are effectuating this change? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in in addition to the ways in which we see, I think, more Black people, for example, right, in elected positions across the country, I think we're seeing more images of Black and Brown folks and queer people and trans folks, et cetera, on our screens. And I think it's meant to make us think that we, you know, have have made progress both on the ground as well as, you know, in the industry. You know, I'm a little bit, I think, maybe pessimistic when it when it comes to that, because I'm interested in long-term change. And I think what we have seen are the ways in which only only certain types of people are allowed to tell their story. Even Black people, only certain types of Black folks have been allowed to tell their story, say, in the last five years, right? How Oscar, so? so- like, what do you mean by that? Certain certain Black people? Well, I mean, you know, you know, you have your folks who bubbled through, who bubbled up. You have your Lena Waifs, your Shonda Rhimes, is your Issa Rae's. You know, Regina King now has been, you know, knighted, if you will, to be a a storyteller. You all should check out One Night in Miami if you have not done so on Amazon Prime already. This is not an ad. But those are the types of people that I think have had, had, you know, uh, supreme opportunities, right, that have been gifted them by the white establishment in the industry. But when you look at the numbers and you look at the data of the available of talent and the availability of ideas from various folks of various backgrounds, we still aren't, you know, we still aren't there yet, right? And, you know, Oscar So White, which I think people point to as the, the, the moment of reckoning for our industry was what, 2014, 2015, something like that. And while we've seen, I think, great moments of certain films bubbling up, the narratives that they're connected to are still very finite. And so I think how this connects to our political conversations are is, you know, I feel like we're all just waiting for the ball to drop. 
because we know it will drop because it, if you look at history, we've been at moments where black folks were on screen all over the place and black folks were in various elected po uh, political positions and, the, and then there was a regression. Right. Um, I think we're hoping that Trump was the regression and now we're pushing forward. But, you know, moving on up, even moving on up. Shout out to the Jeffersons, Sherman Hensley, a gay man that many people don't know. Well, I did not know that. For you. Yes, he was a homosexual, but, you know, but he wasn't out for a variety of reasons in the industry and all of that, which we could get into later. But how you doing? Um, but yes, all that to say, I'll wrap it up by saying I think we've seen great strides over the last five years or so. But I'm also interested to see, you know, what the next five years are going to look like. In terms of systemic change, what are the things that you've seen that have moved the needle? And I know, uh, Jarrett, you've you've mentioned on the show before, you were talking, you interviewed a lot of uh, heads of companies or studios, and you would ask them about diversity, and every one of them was saying how much they loved it. And yeah, they're all about it. And yet, you knew that they weren't that serious. Can you guys both, I guess, speak to how do you know if someone is being serious and from from an activist perspective, what works as far as sure. making them believe it or feel it and need to, you know, want to do something? Travel brought up the Oscar so white moment from a few years ago. And as they were talking about that, I, I couldn't help but think Oscar so white happened, we'll say five-ish years ago, because I can't remember what the year was, but... The Oscar So White cover that Variety did was talking about how white the Oscars were that year, but how white the industry was, right? And we'll use that as a microcosm for, for this moment. But they were saying, like, we all have work to do, right? And they were talking about themselves as a publication, but us as an entertainment or uh, industry. Interestingly enough, four years later, <laughs> we have a conversation with the people at Variety, and they have one Black reporter, right? And so you see, like, the bravado of, oh, we've got to do something, but y'all ain't done nothing, <laughs> right? And so when I was talking, you mentioned uh, the, the piece that I ended up actually writing for Variety about the, the different studios and them all wanting, you know, diversity, inclusion to be organic, and it's a part of the fabric of who we are and all this bullshit language that they use, but like, they don't have no plan, right? And there's, there's no number attached to it. There's no date attached to it. But if they wanted to raise money, if they wanted to increase readership, if they wanted to have more pages or more ads, there would be a number attached to that. And so I, I've talked about that on the show a few different times. And so when you see people saying that they want to do something, but they don't set a goal, they don't set like a marker, they don't set like anyone they don't give that task to anyone specific to oversee it when it doesn't report to the top, right? Like you can't then look at me and tell me about how much of a priority it is if it's not being measured and if it's not being tracked. And so I think that when we look at major networks, when we look at television, when we look at government, when we look at, you know, all of the different ways, like we can all talk about like the things that we want to be better about. I can talk all day about how I want to lose, you know, 25 pounds and get my muscle back. But if I don't have no plan and I'm not working out and muscle. I'm eating. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to. I'm sorry. No, see, don't have me act out in front of these white people today. Okay. Because, you know, 
but like but no but i mean honestly like if you don't have a plan right like this morning i worked out and i was like oh well that felt like i did something we'll see about tomorrow right like i don't know if that's gonna happen tomorrow but like you have to have a plan and if people are going to to say that this is important to them they have to demonstrate it in ways that are measurable and and i think that you know, overall, we haven't seen that enough. I mean, it, I, it makes me think of this past summer in particular, right? When, you know, everybody's calling it the racial uh, reckoning. Um, in the aftermath of, of George Floyd's killing, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, every, just about every corporate entity, right? And the government officials and them too, right? You know, they were posting black boxes on their social medias. They were releasing statements saying that they believe black lives matter. And it's it, it struck me as interesting because it took all of this for y'all to say black lives matter, right? It took all of this for us to commit to hiring, you know, X amount of black folks within a particular company or making sure that the black folks who are already within your company have some sort of support system, have a, a, appropriate therapy, you know, provisions, et cetera, right? Like there, there is often a lack of accountability that happens when we when we have these conversations, particularly with people with privilege, right? And that can be white people. It also can be bougie black folks. It also can be the white gays. You know, it can be a variety of folks depending on the particular circumstance. Um, and we don't talk enough about accountability, what that looks like. We don't talk about the ways in which, you know, the folks with the most privilege have to be willing to give up some of their privileges, right, in order for some equity to, to, to pop up into a space. We don't talk about the ways in which we need white people to use their privilege, use their bodies, use their money, et cetera, to level the playing field for various other communities who just don't have the same level of access and privilege that they, they do. We, we make people feel as if they can post a black box on their social media and it'd be fine. We make them feel as if it's okay to show up at a protest and use it for social media content, right? Um, we we make them feel as if it's okay if they gave $5 to a bail fund and then their, their work is done. When I think as, as Black folks, as queer people, trans people, et cetera, we know that the work is ongoing. We know that those particular interventions, while necessary and, and while useful, aren't the end all be all. And and, you know, it, it's I think this moment just calls for more on behalf of all of our parts. So in terms of moving the needle and I guess challenging, challenging sort of status quo, I think, you know, we were all kind of blown away when the Democrats got both Senate seats in Georgia and I feel like for most of the time, Democrats weren't necessarily challenging it. What what changed? What worked? What what was it that got us to that point where you have a, you know, a deep a state in the deep south that elects to a, a, a black and a Jewish senator? Is is was is there something? Is there a generational shift at all in why that was possible or why that came to be? I mean, I would. I'm, I'm going to go first, Jared, because I know Jared, Jared's got a real answer for y'all. I'm going to give y'all my answer. 
I think a lot of folks, I just think it was, it was a long time coming. I think when you look at where the majority of those votes were coming from, right, they were coming, correct me if I'm wrong, Jared, they were coming from the Atlanta metropolitan area. Jared and I both went to school in the Atlanta area and at different times because I'm a young spring chicken and... and you know what? Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, anyway. no, keep on, keep on, <laughs> mm-hmm. keep on. It's only a few years apart. Anyway, but what we know is that Atlanta is, Atlanta has all these other names, right? All these other nicknames that people have given it. One of which, one of which being like Black Hollywood, right? Because of the ways in which Black folks across various industries, right, are really prominent in the Atlanta area. Um, in the minute, you know, your Real Housewives of Atlanta, your, you know, love and hip hop folks, like all of the girls, Tyler Perry and his empire is in Atlanta. Not to mention all of the ways in which those. I think prominent examples of Black folks in the area spill down into aspirational opportunities for other Black folks to move to Atlanta, right? Atlanta seems very attainable as a city for someone to move to who lives in Mississippi as compared to a a New York City or in LA, right? We can drive to Atlanta, okay? And I think all of that created this slow churn of people who who were in the Atlanta area. And then there's, you know, I know a lot of folks give a lot of credit to Stacey Abrams and she definitely deserves it, right? But there are other on the ground activists, right? Whose names we don't know, who've been doing this work for decades, right? At this point, who knew that this opportunity was eventually going to come to pass. I mean, who were laying that groundwork that Stacey Abrams was able to, you know, I think capitalize on when she ended up running. And so I think it's a variety of different types of things that like were going on that ultimately got us to this place. And a lot of those folks were were younger. Some of them, you know, were seasoned professionals, seasoned organizers and activists as well. But folks saw the opportunity, I think, with Stacey's governor, governor, mayor, what's it called? Governor. Election campaign, whatever it was called. And folks were like, we're not taking our heels off these folks' necks. Okay, Jerry, you can give them the real answer. No, I think you got it. Next question. Uh, I would say that when we look at Georgia specifically, actually uh, this morning, a friend of mine who's in Georgia published a piece in Travel's extra magazine that comes out of, of Canada. Uh, his name is Ashton Reynolds, and he is a Black queer minister in Atlanta, and he wrote about being a part of the organizing effort. And it was important to me because I've heard Brittany Packnett Cunningham say this, and I thought it was perfect. She said, Georgia wasn't red. It was suppressed. Right. And like all across the South and in many other wow. states, for the record, we've right. That's good work. Um, uh, Georgia is, is kind of an example of. No, there are people here who want something different. Right. And what's been so interesting to me is like this attachment to whiteness that that white voters in Georgia have have had for so long. And when we see things like Georgia happen, it takes white people to vote as well. Right. For John Ossoff and, and Ref, Reverend Raphael Warnock. However, it it takes organizing, it takes persistence, and it takes frustration, I think. Because when we saw Stacey Abrams in, in 2018 running for governor, the voter suppression tactics of Republicans, white folks in, in that state specifically, was so overt and egregious that 
at some point, something has got to change, right? Like if you remember in that race, Brian Kemp was a secretary of state running for governor. He was presiding over the election in which he was running, right? There is no reasonable person that is going to look at that and say, well, it seems okay, right? He was fair but though. The, he was definitely fair. I mean, aside from purging hundreds of thousands of people from the voting rolls, right? And so when I think about that, I think about what happened here in 2020. We saw John Ossoff win, I think it was a 50-ish thousand vote margin, and I think John Ossoff was somewhere between 10 and 20,000 votes, which is interesting to me because there are people who voted for Raphael Warnock and then voted for David Perdue, but they were, you know, like there's a John Ossoff, Kelly Leffler voter, which I don't understand. But it was interesting to me because they had just purged 200,000 people off of the voting rolls prior to that election, right, in the, in the last campaign. 200,000 people being purged from the voter roll shows you the impact of that when the margin of victory is 50,000 votes, 10, 20,000 votes, and that's just in the runoff, right? And so we see people across the state of Georgia who have been organizing, who have been knocking on doors, who have been calling their friends, who have figured out, even in a, the midst of a global pandemic, how to reach people and say, there is something different that we can do. And I think that's been really, really profound. And lastly, What's interesting to me is we have so many Republicans, if we're looking at Georgia or any other state, we 74 million people that voted for Donald Trump after the last four years. It's interesting to me that they are so vehemently against Joe Biden, but they are going to benefit from Joe Biden and his policies uh, and Kamala Harris. They're going to benefit from that like everybody else will, right? Like they're going to get a $2,000 check or whatever it will be, just like everyone else will. They will be able to be vaccinated in a system that works and has a plan attached to it like everyone else will. And so we we see these kinds of things as like progressive values, but they, they help everyone. Republican values don't even tend to help Republicans, right? Like they don't tend to, when you're tax, when you're cutting taxes on the rich, that doesn't help the poor Republican person who who's probably white, right? In whatever state, that doesn't help the the middle class American who lives in in Iowa or wherever. And so that's actually what's really pr frustrating to me sometimes is to see how like progressives, it is a progressive value to help everyone, right? Which is why we hear Joe Biden talking about the importance of reaching across the aisles and all that shit, which I think is great for him, but is not the work for me. And that's a different conversation that we can probably have. But I, I it's, it's frustrating to see that like our value, which I believe in, is to bring everyone into the fold where it is literally a progressive value to hold on to the whiteness, to hold on to white supremacy and like excluding everyone else, right? To be, to conserve, right? To protect, to hold on to, so. I think I'm gonna open up to, uh, open the floor up to some questions. I, we have a, um, we have a few that are already prepared. So I'm, uh, you know, I've got a, ton of windows open and I'm looking for the doc that has the questions. Too many windows. It's somewhere there. Okay, so this is a, uh, some of these questions the attendants want to ask themselves and if they don't, then I will read them. So this is from Mara, she, her, and she, she asks, I'm struggling to figure out how to counteract against the coup. How do you protest or organize against everything, especially <laughs> in these <laughs> pandemic times? Oh, Go ahead, Jared. <laughs> oh, oh, that's me. 
I think staying engaged is probably the most important thing. I, I often hearken back to 2008 when Barack Obama was running and then 2009 when he became president, saying to folks like, okay, but like getting me into office is not the end of, you know, your civic duty, right? And I think that if anything has shown us how quickly things can change, Donald Trump was that, right? <laughs> From inauguration day in 2017, we started to see how things immediately started to change. I think that people have to remain engaged. And if they're not engaged, get engaged, because we can see that the current administration, whether you're Democrat or a Republican, you should be able to just looking at the COVID uh, press conference that happened yesterday and see like, oh, this is someone who's trying to do something, right? Who's trying to help, who's trying to find a solution. And so I think it's important for people to stay engaged and saying organized and like join up with an organization that is doing some work that you care about. We can't, we can't tackle everything, right? Travel and I, we are president and vice president of the National Association of Black Journalists of Los Angeles, like you mentioned. Like that is a lane where I can do work, right? I can work with uh, black journalists and media and entertainers and things like that to be able to help mold the way that we we handle the images of black folks in media. But like you might be really interested in voter registration and getting people to the polls, or you might be really interested in homelessness or whatever it is, like get in there somewhere and see what work you can do. Because I think that sometimes it feels so daunting to try and make a change because it's such a big system. But in reality, our local organizations that are making a difference in our communities and abroad, uh, you know, domestically across the country, I should say, those are the places where you can really see the needle moving. So I would I would say that's probably the first thing that uh, would be really important. Also, I'll just add, we get a lot of emails from listeners wanting to know how they can be allies. There's a lot of questions about allyship. And we we had a an episode with oh, a fantastic Jarrett who was talking. I can't stand you people. Okay? He, was a, oh, he was like so <laughs> sparkly. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> Oh, I mean it in the most racist, degrading way I can think of, just so we're clear, yes. But in terms of, you know, I, I, if you guys want to speak to that a little bit, because a lot of times it's how to, how can I be an ally? And, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it, it might not be the easiest thing in the world, but he did sort of give us some pointers if one of you wants to sort of uh, elaborate on that. Trevelle, yeah, I was going to say... Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to mention that episode as a potential resource. It's called OK Allies. Now let's get information. Shout out to Beyonce featuring Jared Lucas, who is one of Jared's best friends. He's the executive director of the Stonewall Community Foundation. And there's a lot of good good that he says on that episode that I will allow you all to to delve into later. But one of the things that I think is important when we talk about what organizing looks like, what being committed to the cause looks like, we often talk in 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 bigger ways and we talk about voter registration, we talk about voting, we talk about, you know, calling up your senator and all of that type of stuff. In addition to that, I think about the ways you can be a, su- a supporter, an ally, in the words of Jared Lucas from that episode, a race traitor in your everyday lives at your jobs at the coffee house down the street right and that's like making sure that like when you see something that is inappropriate taking place you say something that's making sure that you are using whatever privileges that you have in your particular community to bring other voices up that that don't have that same level of privileges i think about you know 
I have a lot of people who ask me about like how, how they can be an ally or support of like trans folks, for example. And I think about the many ways in which, you know, our friends and our families make transphobic jokes, right? That we just don't check, right? I think that's a way that an individual can begin to reorient themselves to hold your own specific community, your friends, your family accountable. And I think that then will, if everybody's, if I'm holding my people accountable and you're holding your people accountable and everybody's holding their people accountable, that's how communities change, right? That's how people overall shift their thinking. And I think it will have other uh, impact and other effect. Also, when we talk about the kind of the more formal or systemic ways, right, that people can get involved. So like, you know, just making sure that like, you know, if you're at work or you're on a Zoom call in these particular circumstances and you hear somebody say something that's sexist, don't just laugh it off. That's particularly for the men. Don't just laugh it off, right? As as a locker room talk, right? You need to intervene in that situation and let them know at minimum that you're somebody who's not going to, you know, stand for that type of behavior in in a particular space. Can we get a demonstration? Like just uh, if you guys could do a little role playing and you know, sort of model the behavior that you want to see in the world. That's a YouTube clip. I will not be a part of. Um, I, I shan't. <laughs> but I will say, right, it's, it, it literally is simple as in like, that's not funny. You know, like, I, I think we think sometimes that it's, it's difficult to do those types of things. Right. But right. It, it can even be just like a facial expression, right? Like, you know, that was pretty good. But like, <laughs> but it, it doesn't have to be, I feel like we, we and I've, I've done this before, just thinking that like doing the right thing is gonna be so fucking hard and so difficult when like it literally takes you two seconds to be like, that's not funny. Um, and if you don't wanna do it in front of a big crowd, that's fine too. I mean, I, I like public shaming personally, but like if you wanna pull somebody to the side after the meeting, you know, and be like, hey, you know, you said this, I don't think that was cool. I don't think that's behavior that we should be encouraging. Like that's cool too. figure out how, how you can, you know, intervene in a way that, you know, makes you comfortable. Right. And ensures your safety. Right. Cause you know, I don't want you losing your job either, but some people going to have to lose their jobs for the cause. Okay. <laughs> I don't want it to be me. I don't want it to be you either, but somebody got to. So what are we going to do when we at a standstill? I'd rather it be <laughs> <I> you. Mean- <laughs> Maria, she, her, uh, wants to ask. <laughs> Are you concerned that people will become complacent again, like we saw post-2009 when Newsweek and others were touting the post-racial America? Mm. To be clear, only white people were doing that, right? Like, no black people saw Barack Obama get elected and thought, well, racism is over, right? Because, <laughs> Well, like, you know, Herman Cain, rest in peace, might have been, you know. I, He's always I, been I, one of those special blacks. He was in that minority for sure. But like, I think that when we, when I want to make sure that the, the question again is about like, how do we, how do, how was the question worded? Uh, are you concerned that people will become complacent again, like right. we saw in 2009 or post 2009? I absolutely am. Right. I, I think that we, we push people to get out and vote and participate in the process and all of those things. And like, 
I don't think that we focus enough on like the ongoing work that comes after enough. I, I mean, voting is obviously very important and people seem to have gotten the message this year when it came to turnout because we've had more people vote this year than ever. And even in the runoff, we saw that the, the numbers looked a lot like what like they would in a, in a general. And so it was it's encouraging to see people so excited and enthusiastic, but I, I kind of hate quoting Ronald Reagan, but I do it often with this yeah, one. And when he became governor of California, he said, freedom is but a generation away from extinction. And I think that that is very true. And we saw that it's not just a whole generation away, right? It can be an administration away. And so when we look at what Donald Trump has done, if Donald Trump had another four years, Jesus, you know what I mean? Like, if we just think about COVID, because um, I was using the Joe Biden example earlier, right? Like, where would we be in six months from now? You know what I mean? And so it's important for us to always know that things can change at a moment's notice. And we have two years, seemingly, you know, if nothing changes in the Senate, of, of Democratic control in Congress and, and, the, uh, and in the executive branch. But like, when midterms comes around, who knows what's going to happen, right? We know that Georgia is back up for a gubernatorial election in 2022. And, you know, and Stacey Abrams will probably be running uh, and, and will hopefully do well. But we know that there is work to do in between elections, that there's work to do every single day. And that's why I think it's so important for people to stay a part of, uh, you know, organizing because the work does not die in November, as we can see that, like, that work is important to be do being done all the time because Georgia didn't just change because, you know, Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight were working for two years to do that. Georgia changed because people have been working on that for a long time. And like then there was momentum for it. Right. Earlier, uh, Travel was talking about, you know, all these companies that are talking about Black Lives Matter and all that and putting up the black square and all that. And like some of those companies were like reaching out to folks like you know, us or friends of ours to help them write their statements. And that was frustrating to me because I thought if you don't have the capacity inside your company to be able to get a good enough statement together for Black Lives Matter, you probably have work that you need to be doing before you come out and make a statement, right? Because the statement is about looking good, not being good. And, and the work is about being good and not just looking good. And so when I think about the work that needs to be done continually every single day, that is, that is kind of where I am on it. And I think the important part is to say, right, is that it is, it is work, right? Like it, 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 I think sometimes many of us, right? Cause you know, I'm not, I don't get out in them streets. Okay. That's not my cross to bear. All right. I leave that for the other girls to do all the street protesting. But for the rest of us who be on our couch, you know, I send a couple dollars, you know, and stuff like that when I can. Uh, <laughs> but so many of us who aren't engaged in that particular work, I think often look at it as, as we look at those folks as like, as, as if we, I, I guess, are in a better position, right? Because we're not in the street, right? Um, we don't look at activism and organizing as a job, right? As work. That's why so many of them, you know, they they're they, they struggling to pay their own bills as they're fighting for our liberation right as a country and so it makes me just think of the ways in which um i think it's necessary for folks to one recognize the efforts that they're doing as work as well and realize that like that we also need to be doing something as well because what we know is that in history has taught us right is that people do get complacent 
in various industries at various moments. That's the reason why, right, the the typically midterm elections, right, have a lower turnout because there's not somebody running for president at the same time, right? We need everybody to show up continually, right? We still need you to call your senators. I know I made a joke about it earlier, but yes, we need people to call their senators and hold them accountable, but also, all of these Republicans who've been around here, you know, just lapping up everything that Donald Trump is has these been what? saying. These the, the Republicans. <laughs> but their terms are coming up, right? And so, like, if you if you really feel that, you know, there were issues with the ways in which our government was being run under him, right? Like these people need to not have a job. You know, they need to they need to do something else with their time. And so we have to get comfortable with that. And I, I think so much about the South Carolina race between Jamie Harrison and um, homie. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Lindsey Graham. Um, and how there was a lot of energy, right, around that race. And Jamie got closer, I'm sure, than any other person, right, has even thought to get close to, to and, and wasn't that close, to be clear, to winning <laughs> that particular seat. But, like, I think that's a perfect example of the ways in which some people who, who are our family members, who are, well, not my family, because they know better, but who are some of our family members and our friends and the people that we are in community with, turn a blind eye just because there is a familiarity with a particular name, just because they've been in the role for 15 years. Just because you've been in the role for 15 years don't mean you need to be in the role for 15 more, yeah. you know? And so those are the types of people that we need to get the hell up on out. Uh, we, have, we have a question from Brian and I, and I think whatever your follow-up might be could, okay. it, it might relate. So Brian has a question. Hey, Brian. Hey, how's it going? Um, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and thank you so much for uh, doing the show. It has been uh, such a comfort and such a valuable resource uh, over this last year. Uh, I can't even tell you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, my question is, uh, so I'm a well-meaning white person. Um, what, uh, what, if, if you could limit yourself to one thing, I know you could talk about this for hours, but what's one important thing that well-meaning white people are still missing when it comes to the movement for black lives? Mm. I think there's a, a, a delicate balance of speaking up and listening that is really important when it comes to, you know, activism and what I was going to chime in with, and I think it's, it is relevant here, as Laura was saying, is I think it's important to recognize that activism looks in, looks different ways. I think that activism for us can be, you know, making a sign, going out and protesting and, you know, being a part of that kind of that that resistance that we see. But I think also I, I think of the work that we do at NABJLA as as activism. Right. And I think that well-meaning white folks who want to do the work, I think you have to figure out you have to do enough listening to be able to know where to go, right? To be able to know what to do. And I think that a lot of well-meaning white folks think that the work is, you know, is just the listening, but then there's also like the work that comes after it. I've, I've talked on the show about a person that I used to work with who hosts another show. And she had this idea that in June that doing the work was having black people on the show to talk about their experience. But like 
took no time to acknowledge like the overtly racist things that she had done to me, right? And the ways that that had impacted my life and my livelihood because I I quit that job because of working with her, right? And so there is there is the work of listening and being a part of like trying to understand what you can do and then taking that taking action after that and continuing to listen because there's always more to learn. But I I think that that's probably the one of the most important things is is figuring out that balance of listening and hearing and then you know, making those things actionable. Um, I would add, and I'd say, I think that, you know, I want to make a comment about like anger and frustration in, in these spaces. And I find that a lot of well-meaning white folks, they're down for the cause until we get mad. Right. Mm. And, you know, our anger can manifest itself in a variety of different ways. And I'm not, you know, endorsing any particular way, but you know, if you've, if you've lived the types of experiences that we've lived up until the point that we get tired of it, there's going to be some anger. And I find that well-meaning white people always want us to calm down. <laughs> and, and while I get it, I think there is a, another way that well-meaning white people can support us by, uh, instead of telling us to calm down. I think, you know, it's important to sometimes make space for that anger because it is righteous anger. And perhaps you also should be goddamn angry too. Well, and I, I think even to that point, Travel, I, I think that we can look at the folks who were at the Capitol, right? They were so angry about losing that election or the election being stolen from them, however they want to word that. That was two months of anger, right? After four years of a presidency. But Black folks have been in this country for 400 years and have not done that, right? My, maybe we should, right? But like, but like Black folks have been, Black folks, Brown folks, LGBTQ folks, disabled folks, like all kinds of folks that have been uh, underrepresented and underappreciated have been in that position for a long time um, since the inception of this country. And these, these white folks were upset over about something that happened in November, and they did that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, well, that's all the uh, questions that we have. Thank you, time Brian. For thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening, by the way. Before we say goodbye, can each of you give us a cultural recommendation? You've already given one night in Miami, so you have to pick a different one, Travel. Mm. <laughs> yeah, let's go, Jared. Oh, I thought I had more time. Um, I'm ready. Oh, okay. I just wanted to get it as a demonstration. You all should go get this book, Black Futures. It's edited by Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. Kimberly Drew is an art curator person. Jenna Wortham is a New York Times journalist. It is a collection of essays and photos and conversations all about Black futures, what that means, what that looks like. It talks about activism in a formal sense, but also in a kind of ethereal sense in terms of the, the work and art that we produce as folks. I think it is a great resource for 
the well-meaning white folks, right, who want to get an understanding of, of the, the promised land, of the vision that many of us actually have for not only this country, but our existence as, as human beings. So I would offer up this book as a really great resource. I mean, it's, it's weighty, like it's meant to be on your coffee table and stuff like that. So it takes you time to get through it, but it is amazing. And then one last one is I don't have the cover near me, but it's another book that I have a review coming out in the Washington Post of next week, I think. Of Cicely, it's Cicely Tyson's memoir, which comes out next week called Just As I Am. I was going to explain who Cicely Tyson is, but I'm not going to do that. Google it if you don't know. But it's a it's a fabulous, I mean, it's long, okay? It looks like a hymnal. But um, it is a fabulous story of how she, at 96 years old, or 98, 96 years old, has navigated and survived this country. But I think reading it from the perspective of a 96-year-old Black woman, dark, who's darker skinned, who was told she wasn't beautiful as a kid, and who has, you know, some modicum of celebrity and fame now. It also shows kind of the history of this country, particularly over the last hundred years, that I think is also very useful. Go, Jader. I would say, if we're, if we're thinking about media specifically, um, one of the things that has had such an impact on the way that I think about voting, and we, we've talked a lot about voting today, was the new documentary that came from Stacey Abrams called All In the Fight for Democracy. It's available on Amazon Prime right now, and I think it is one of the most incredible looks at voting and voter suppression across the history of America. And I, I just think they do such a beautiful job of explaining like how we got here, really to your initial question. And then I would also recommend, I, I think of All In, the fight for democracy as being the 13th of voting and, and, and democracy. I would also suggest 13th on Netflix, which is a little bit older, it's a few years older now, by Ava DuVernay, um, that really looks at uh, the history of policing and our prison system and the ways that that has had, had impact on Black folks. And then lastly, there's a, a, a piece that was in The New Yorker, and it's called, uh, oh crap. It's called um, How a Police Force Bankrupted a City or something like that. I'll have to, I'll, I'll pull it up and, and send it, I'll drop it in the chat in just a moment. But it was a really eye-opening piece about the city where my parents live, quite frankly. frankly. And I didn't know that it was so bad there with the police. But like, I think that if we can have a better understanding of the ways that these systems, whether it be voting, whether it be prison and policing or and things like that, if white folks can have a better understanding of the ways that 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 those things have an impact on black life that's just like a great place to begin if you will right because like i think also one of the the the, the main problems in in america is that we also often look at black issues as simply being you know policing and you know a, a few other things but those are the things that i would immediately think of as far as uh, having some real perspective on culture um, that's great. I think you guys also forgot to mention Bridgerton, but I will, I'll just leave it there. I still haven't started it. I'm, I've, <laughs> I've been saying I'm going to start it like every day for the last week and a half and I still have it, but I'm going to try it. I don't think it's my kind of show, but everyone's so excited and it's Shonda. So it's, we'll uh, see. it's very accurate historically and, <laughs> uh, it's, oh, okay. it's, it's important. It, it's important TV and but it's fine. You admitted it. That's I'll report okay. back next week if I've watched it. I'll let you know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for uh, for doing the panel this week. And it, for all of you that are uh, watching, 
Subscribe to Fanti if you're not already. It's such a great show. Apple named it as one of the top 20 of 2020, which is kind of a big deal. Top 12. So, top 12? Yeah. Did I get that wrong? Oh my goodness. We're top 12. Like that's <laughs> that's crazy. So you're welcome everyone for me bringing them to you. <laughs> All right, so thank you also Max Fund members. We're going to add this recording to the bonus content page so that all Max Fund members can have a chance to watch it. That video should be up next week in case you'd ever like to rewatch it or if you want to let your Max Fund member friends know about it. Our next behind the mic event will take place on February 19th. Golden Eagles and Platinum Angels, look for your email invitation in the coming weeks. Thank you again, Jarrett and Travel, and thank you all for joining us today. Everyone, enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Maria, I love your outfit. It's gorgeous. FYI. <laughs> yes, it is, honey, it, it is really good. Yeah. Yes. She's like, uh, uh. Okay, I'm uh, done. Uh. <laughs> we'll see you guys. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.